Hello, Crime Clan, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Amelia Allen, and I have a wild story for you today. Before we get started, don't forget to follow or subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen on, and connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast, and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. And I am sorry today, guys. I uh, am a little, my throat's a little froggy from my allergies, so I will hopefully not have my voice breaking too much through this episode, but if you hear me getting a little creaky by the end, that will be why. (laughs) So I had intended for today's episode to be a celebrity collection of sorts, Originally, I was going to cover a few different cases with celebrity connections, but once I started diving into this particular case, it seemed like it really should stand alone. And this is a pretty famous one for those of you that have been around Colorado for a while, but some of you may have not heard of it. Today, I'm covering the murder of professional skier Spider Savage. So let's get started. So I really want to take some time to talk about Spider himself. Many of his friends will say that his murder, unbelievable sentence of his killer, and the media storm have overshadowed what was a really bright life and career. So I want to make sure that I'm honoring Spider in the correct way by focusing on the life that he led. Spider was born Vladimir Savage on January 10th, 1945. He was born and raised in Kybers, California, which is just outside of South Lake Tahoe, and it's an extremely small town. His dad was also named Vladimir, and that's how he got his name. Spider's dad was a California Highway Patrol officer, and his mom ran the local post office. He also had an older sister named Mary and a younger brother named Steve. Spider was born premature and was kind of gangly and spindly because of it, and that's how he got his nickname Spider, which he kept all of his life and in his professional skiing life. Spider first learned to ski at Idlevice, a ski park near Kybers that is now closed. All the kids would be picked up and dropped off on the mountain by their dad in his patrol car. Spider made his first big break at a ski competition sponsored by the Sacramento Bee. Though he was only in the 8th grade, so about 13 years old, he was beating 17 and 18 year olds in competition. Bob Beatty, legendary ski coach, noticed him and brought him on to the University of Colorado Boulder team. At the time, Beatty coached both the university team and the U.S. ski team. Spider became a very accomplished technical skier and excelled at the Salome. His friends would say that there was no luck in his career. He just legitimately won. Spider competed in the 1968 Olympic Games in France. He placed fifth in the slalom in the Games. He was 22 at the time. A couple months later, he won the World Cup at Heavenly Valley in Tahoe. This is also where he'd begun to ski after starting up at Idlevice. So he really got to win on his home turf. 
He would go on to have 18 finishes within the top 10 in the World Cup circuit. His old coach, Bob Biatti, created a professional league in 1970, which Spider joined. These races were featured on the 1970s Saturday afternoon staple, ABC's Wide World of Sports. These included championships he won in 1971 and 1972. This really propelled him to the upper echelon of the 1970s sports world. His popularity also caused downhill racing to become a lot more popular in the U.S. than it had been previously. Robert Redfer and James Salter had even shadowed along with Spider a bit after his run at the 1968 Olympics and through some of his competitions in the World Cup. With their new knowledge of the ski world, they made the film Downhill Racer. This was a breakout role in Redford's career. Spider had all the makings of a superstar. He had California boy good looks and a glowing smile. His technique was considered one of the best in his generation of skiers. And he was also a great team player and shared knowledge with his teammates. He was your quintessential 70s skier, as he was known to kick back a few the night before a race and still get up and dominate the competition. Spider's move to Colorado was in conjunction with a bad crash he had at Aspen Highlands. His friends had recalled that part of what made him a great skier was that he was really fearless. But fearlessness would also prove to be his power as well as his downfall as a skier. This accident caused a compressed vertebrae in his back, and it was ending his career. He purchased a home in Starwood on the edge of Aspen. It was a gated community where many of the celebrity folk in Aspen lived. He often spent time at Starwood with his good friend, singer and songwriter, John Denver. And if you are totally out of the loop on Colorado popular culture, John Denver was known for songs like Thank God I'm a Country Boy, Rocky Mountain High, and Take Me Home Country Roads. Spider really became Aspen's hometown hero, and he made a marked change in the city. He carried the sense of community that he had grown to love in Boulder to Aspen, and he really built up the ski community and the community of the whole city. It was Spider who put the K2 mountain on the national radar. At the time of his death in 1976, Spider was 31 years old. One of the sources that he used for this episode was from the Tahoe Quarterly. The article was really in-depth, but if you want, you should go check out the comments because they're pretty cool. A number are from people who knew or met Spider, like maybe they knew him in college or just kind of acquaintances, and there are just more glowing words about him and his life. And if you want to check it out, the link to the Tahoe Quarterly article will be on altitudecrime.com. It's just a gives you a little bit more perspective on who he was as a person. Claudine Langer was born in Paris in 1942. She became a dancer in France at age 17. Shortly after, Lou Walters, who was an entertainment agent and creator of the famed Latin Quarter nightclub in New York, saw Langer on French television. He sought her out and hired her to perform in Foley's Bergere at Tropicana Hotel in Las Vegas. So for any of you that have visited Las Vegas in the recent past, you know the Tropicana is kind of one of those dated hotels that they renovate and are really looking to stay relevant. But in its early days, the Tropicana was pure luxury. So getting recruited to dance there was a really big deal. At the same time that Langer started to dance in Las Vegas, 
crooner Andy Williams headlined there. The two met, and it was not long before they were married in 1961. Andy was 14 years older than Langer. They moved to California, and this is really when Andy Williams' career started to take off. He got his television variety show that Langer often appeared on, uh, specifically for the Christmas special. And Andy's fame promoted Langer's. She was an actress, singer, and dancer throughout the 1960s. Her debut album that was released in 1967 hit number 11 on the United States Billboard Pop Charts. This made her one of the only French-born artists to make this kind of record sales in the U.S., a feat that only one other French-born singer has accomplished. Andy and Langer would go on to have three children together. One child was named Bobby after their very close friend Robert Kennedy. Langer was actually at the Ambassador Hotel on June 5, 1968, when Kennedy was shot and killed. The couple's marriage would eventually end in divorce, and Claudine sought to escape Hollywood for a while. The high-scale mountain living of Aspen seemed like a good fit for her and her family, and she and the children moved to Colorado. Overall, Langer had a pretty wholesome reputation as both a celebrity and an entertainer. At the time of Spider's murder, Langer was 35 years old. Spider and Langer met in 1972 in Bear Valley, California at a celebrity ski race. They ended up dating for four years. The relationship ended along with Spider's life. The relationship was both glamorous and tumultuous. When they met, Langer had been divorced from Andy Williams for about a year. She was three years older than Spider, and two years into the relationship in 1974, Langer and the kids moved into Spider's Starwood home. The couple may have been doomed from the beginning. Spider had this kind of daredevilish lifestyle. He raced cars, he partied, he was young and fabulous and just living a good life. While Langer had been a family woman for a while and she still had three kids to raise. And Langer definitely had a jealous streak. This was emphasized by the fact that she was also really an outsider in Aspen. She kind of came in out of nowhere and swooped up the most eligible bachelor in town and kind of this figurehead of the town. But it doesn't seem like everybody was really a fan of the socialite. This made for what seemed like constant cycles of fights and makeups, making the relationship both explosive and passionate. And the turmoil was not only in private. Langer was seen throwing a glass of wine in Spider's face at a party for not paying her enough attention. But Spider really did care for her. His sister-in-law recalled her being the only girlfriend he ever brought home to meet the family. As the relationship continued to deteriorate, Spider opted to end the affair. In the beginning of March, he asked Langer to move out by April 1st. But the 1st of April would never come for Spider. Let me also paint a little backdrop of Aspen at the time and what the scene was for this murder. So in the 60s, Aspen was still kind of small and hadn't become quite the glamorous star-studded place that it would become in the later 70s, 80s, and up to today. But in 1970, Aspen had started to change. This was the year that resident Hunter S. Thompson campaigned to be elected sheriff of Pitkin County. For those of you not familiar with that name, he is most notably known as the author of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. 
Thompson did not win the election, but many famous people and trust fund types had started to migrate to Aspen and started to make it the upper echelon of Colorado destinations that it is today. And on an interesting note, had Thompson been elected, he would have overseen the investigation in this case. Spider Savage was murdered on March 21, 1976, just 11 days short of when Langer was supposed to leave his home. That day, Spider had spent some time with his ex-coach and longtime friend, Bob Biatti. He had come home, but the two were set to have dinner later that evening. So early in the evening, an ambulance was called to Spider's home in Starwood. The first person on the scene, a security guard in the community, found a very upset and confused Langer, who simply told him, quote, I shot Spider, unquote. Medics then found Spider hunched over on the bathroom floor. He had received one gunshot wound right below his rib cage. He had no pulse when the ambulance arrived and had bled to death at that point. The EMT staff did try to revive him on the way to the hospital, where he was pronounced dead upon arrival. His cause of death was determined to be massive internal bleeding. Langer had rode in the ambulance with him to the hospital. Authorities spoke with Langer immediately. She confessed to shooting Spider, but said it was purely an accident. Spider was going to leave for a ski show in Las Vegas the following day. She wanted to get kind of a refresher on how the gun that he owned worked so she could have it while the children and herself were alone in the home. He got out his imitation World War II Luger 22 caliber pistol to show her how to use it again. She claimed the gun went off in an accident while he was teaching her how to handle it. Police pretty quickly did not believe Langer's claim that the incident was an accident. They were suspicious that the gunshot was rage-induced and that Langer had meant to kill Spider. So let's review the evidence in two ways. One in which her story is true, and one in which it is not. So let's talk about the evidence that would support Langer's claim that the shot was an accident. A firearm expert that testified at trial said that Spider's gun was a pretty shoddy imitation, and that that type of gun was known to have a lot of issues, and it was very possible it could have misfired. Langer testified that while Spider was showing her the gun, the two of them had a conversation about whether the safety was on or not. She thought it was. The same firearms expert would testify that the safety on Spider's gun was actually not working properly. Now let's talk about the evidence that discredits Langer's story and would make you think she had meant to shoot Spider. There was initial doubt in her story as there was not really a good reason for her to be fearful of being in the neighborhood alone. It was high class, gated, had security guards. They weren't really living in a normal situation where they would have been more open to intruders, robbers, etc. And you would have to think that in the two years they lived together, Spider had to have traveled somewhere else before. So did she have him show her the gun before in a situation like that? That's something we'll never know. There was also doubt that Spider would have shown Langer anything with the gun indoors. He had been raised with guns and was very comfortable with them and very safe about them, and his family thought this story seemed a little off. Langer was under the influence of cocaine at the time of the incident. 
An autopsy showed that Spider would have actually had his back to her and maybe even have been slightly bent over. It has been concluded that he may have actually been bending over the sink as his items were prepared like he was about to shave. So this seems to lend that there's no way that they were having a face-to-face conversation regarding the gun if he both had his back to her and was bent over. The casing on the bullet spent in the shooting showed strikes that the hammer had hit the bullet and not fired. This meant the gun had jammed four or five times before the shot fired, leaving a marking each time the hammer hit the casing each time the trigger was pulled and the gun misfired. This would definitely not match with the story that the shooting was an accident because otherwise those markings would have not been there if it was supposedly only one shot fired. Langer's diary showed how tumultuous she and Spider's relationship had been, and this contradicted what she told police, as she told them that the relationship was solid and that they had no issues. Now, you would think this would be an open and shut case. Unfortunately, the way in which the evidence was collected ended up getting it all ruled out as inadmissible in court, and the jury never even heard about it. The evidence from the diary was thrown out in regards to crime scene pictures and the details of the warrant. The warrant was not issued to go through everything in the home, so evidence that was deemed as personal could not be used at trial. While looking at the crime scene, one of the investigators picked up the diary from a nightstand to thumb through it. At this time, one set of crime scene photos was being taken, so it showed the diary not on the nightstand where he had picked it up from. The investigator then put it back down and the second set of crime scene pictures was taken showing the diary now on the nightstand. The defense alleged that this was because the diary was actually in one of the drawers and had been taken out. This would have been beyond the scope of the warrant. So as it ends up, the judge ruled in the defense's favor and Langer's writings in the diaries were never seen in court. All of the gun evidence was thrown out of the trial. When the gun was removed from the scene, it was wrapped in a handkerchief and put in the glove box of the sheriff's car. It was not taken out right away, and it took a few days to refind it. This became an issue as far as proving chain of custody of evidence, and that's why it was deemed inadmissible in court. That means that the markings showing multiple trigger pulls could not be discussed in court, and a jury never heard it. Also, when the gun was found in the glove box a few days later, the officer that found it disarmed it. Since this officer was not a firearms expert, he could not testify to the state of the ammunition or the gun when it was found. So that testimony was lost as well. There was also blood drawn that shown Langer was under the influence of cocaine at the time of the murder. It was also not presented at trial, and from what I understand, this was also due to the details set forth in the warrant. So there was a lot that prosecution lost going into this case that honestly, I think would have made a conviction a no-brainer. But losing the ability to talk about this evidence made the case a lot more circumstantial And it turns out that an easy conviction would not be the case. This court proceeding garnered international news. I mean, it was the trifecta of intrigue. You had fame, sex, and drugs all wrapped up into one horrifying story. 
Langer was charged with Spider's death on April 8, 1976, just a couple of weeks after the murder. Leading up to the trial, Langer lived free. She'd been released on a $5,000 bond. Once released, she attended a memorial service in Aspen for Spider and then went to Palm Springs, which I would have thought she would have had to stay in the state until trial, but I must not be very versed in those legalities. Langer's trial began in January 1977. Andy Williams escorted Langer into court and served as a character witness in her trial. Langer's good friend, actor Jack Nicholson, took a prime seat right behind the defense table every day of the trial. Going into the trial, the prosecution saw a felony conviction for Langer of reckless manslaughter. This charge holds up to a 10-year sentence. In true Mountain style, Deputy DA Ashley Anderson showed up to court wearing jeans. The prosecution held that the evidence at the scene did not match Langer's story. They still had the information from the autopsy to work with, and they hammered home that Spider's body was facing away from the weapon and was too far of a distance away to confirm her story. In Langer's testimony, she claimed the gun was laying in her palm and somehow went off. But law enforcement officers that had responded to the scene said differently. They said, under oath, that when they arrived, Langer had said that she had jokingly pointed the gun at Spider and said, bang, bang, prior to the gun accidentally going off. And is that not the sickest thing you have ever heard? The prosecution rested their case after two days. But... In the end, this was the Mountain DA versus the slick, well-paid defense attorney. It seems defense counsel Weedman took the case much more seriously. The prosecution's closing arguments took a mere 22 minutes. The defense's was an hour and a half and included its fair share of dramatics, including quoting poetry. It was then in the hand of the jury, which consisted of seven men and five women. The trial only lasted four days. Langer was convicted of criminally negligent manslaughter, which was only a misdemeanor. The maximum sentence for this would have been a $5,000 fine and two years in prison. Instead, Langer was sentenced to serve 30 days in jail, a $250 fine, and two years probation. To top it off, she didn't even immediately go to jail. She was told she could serve the time when it was best for her as long as it was before September. According to the Washington Post, Judge George Lohr said, quote, he felt releasing her with no jail time might undermine respect for the law, unquote. Because serving 30 days is so opposite to releasing her and doesn't undermine the respect for law at all. In comparison, filmmaker Marty Stouffer was jailed for failure to appear as a potential juror in the case. He was jailed for one day. So, pretty weird sliding scale there. Once the trial was over, Langer jetted off to Mexico for vacation. Five months later, she served her 30-day sentence. The reaction to this murder, trial, and sentencing was huge in Aspen. This was a place that was building real community, so the fact that the crime even occurred was appalling. Hunter S. Thompson equated the situation to Aspen, quote, fouling its own nest, unquote. And for a town that was becoming a place to see and be seen, this was really bad publicity. 
The sensation of the trial continued to build Aspen's reputation as amoral and full of drugs. The going phrase after the sentence was announced was that Aspen was a place where you could go to get away with murder. But overall, the verdict shocked the town. People in Aspen and around the nation were enraged. They felt Langer was guilty of murder and they wanted to see her pay. There is still a lot of hate for Langer in Aspen today. She took away their hometown hero. Spider was the heart of that town while he was alive. It's a wound that that community will never be able to close. After the conclusion of the criminal case, Spider's family opened up a $1.3 million civil case against Langer. They ended up settling out of court in 1979 for an undisclosed amount. But one of the agreements was that Langer could never talk or write about the killing or her relationship with Spider. Langer went on to marry one of her attorneys, Ronald Austin, in 1985. Adding to the sensation of the trial, he had left his wife and children to move in with Langer. This happened before she even served her whopping 30-day sentence. From what I can tell, Langer still lives in the area of Aspen on Red Mountain. Untimely deaths followed the Savage siblings. Spider's sister, Mary, died of brain cancer shortly after Spider's murder. His brother, Steve, died of skin cancer in 2004. Spider was buried in his childhood home of Kybers. Aspen carried on, knowing that had he been alive, Spider would have continued to support and grow the Colorado ski community and the community in Aspen. He was posthumously inducted into the Colorado Snow Sports Hall of Fame in 2009. There was a shrine to Spider in Snowmass for a number of years. I know when I say that, you may be thinking like a monument or a structure, but in mountain towns and ski towns, these shrines are actually kind of unofficial. They're usually pictures or mementos nailed to trees in certain areas, and they're just created by locals. So you have to be tied into the culture of the place to know where they are at. Unfortunately, this shrine is now no longer there. In April 2021, it was removed along with nine other shrines by the Snowmass Ski Patrol. These included shrines to Bob Biotti and Hunter S. Thompson. They were removed after a mix-up in meeting notes, and the Ski Patrol thought they should take the shrines down when they actually didn't have to. But this in no way means Spider Savage will ever be forgotten in the eyes of Aspen. Okay, you know what time it is. Let's wrap up today with a few musings. Musing number one. The biggest thing you have to wonder about this case is Langer was an actress. I always have to wonder when someone with that talent is in a situation like this if we ever really know the truth. Musing number two. While Spider's family did not receive good justice in the courts, at least some good came out of their civil settlement. Since Langer can't discuss the murder or her relationship with Spider, at least they don't have to relive it through her doing interviews or watch her profit from writing books or anything like that. Musing number three. So I know you all are thinking this one. How it could have turned out differently if that evidence had not got thrown out and could have been included in the trial. I feel like she would have gotten a higher level conviction and a longer prison sentence. Musing number four. I will be honest, I legitimately teared up and cried finishing writing this episode. 
And it's just, you see these pictures of Spider and he has this thousand watt smile and it just grabs you. Even in death, his photos just make you feel like there's such life there. And it's just so devastating that a life like that was taken out of this world way too soon. Spider would have continued to do good things and especially for the sport of skiing. He was starting to get involved with kids, getting involved in the sport and making sure they had good coaches he would have continued to affect a lot of people's lives in a really positive way. Musing number five. This case is immortalized in a Rolling Stone song written by Mick Jagger called Claudine. But I will sum up today's episode in the words of Mick Jagger. Quote, Claudine's back in jail again. She only does it at weekends. Claudine. Now only Spider knows for sure, but he ain't talking about it anymore. Isn't Claudine. There's blood in the chalet and blood in the snow. She's washed her hands of the whole damn show. Claudine. She shot him once right through the head. She shot him twice right through the chest. The judge says ruled it was an accident. Claudine. Accidents will happen. And Claudine's back in jail again. Unquote. So thanks again for spending another part of your day with me, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, It was kind of a surprise for me to write it because I wasn't intending on doing a full episode on this case, but it definitely warranted one. Remember to follow or subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen on, and please connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. And as always, you can find the source materials for this episode at altitudecrime.com. So you have a stellar rest of your day, and I can't wait to tell you another story next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 12, The Murder of Spider Savage, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by podbean.com.